All right, good morning. Welcome to our Plant and Programs Committee meeting of our SFCTA for Tuesday, October 11th, 2016. I'm Katie Tang, chairing uh, this committee. And uh, to my left, we have Commissioner Avalos and Commissioner Peskin. Our clerk is Steve Stamos. And from SFGov TV, we'd like to thank Jennifer Lowe and Mark Bunch. Uh, can we please call the roll? All right, item one, roll call. Commissioner Avalos. Avalos present. Commissioner Breed. Breed absent. Commissioner Farrell. Farrell absent. Commissioner Peskin. Present. Peskin present. Commissioner Tang. Present. Tang present. We have quorum. Thank you. Item two. Item two, Citizens Advisory Committee Report. This is an information item. Thank you. Welcome, Chris Wadling, our CAC Chair. Uh, good morning, Commissioners. Um, I'm here to report on two items that we discussed at our CAC meeting this month. Um, item number four in your packet, um, the $12.7 million Prop K. Uh, we approve this unanimously. Um, I'll just make a, a comment on uh, something we discussed. Despite um, being accustomed to seeing these high dollar amounts on some items, uh, some CAC members were taken aback by the high costs associated with the much needed fall protection systems at uh, these six facilities. Um, while the contractor portion of the allocation request is broken out really well, um, and I thank MTA for, for uh, providing that, um, something that jumps out at, at us that was not explained, and I hope that they can explain today a little bit further, is the uh, nearly $2 million for the uh, construction management support, engineering, and uh, project management on this one-year contract. It seemed, seems a little high. Uh, item number five, the Prop AA strategic plan criteria. Um, we approved this unanimously. Uh, the proposed changes mostly re removed duplicative languages uh, in the plan and uh, explicitly added a safety criterion for the trans transit category. So that's all I really had. All right, thank you very much for your presentation. Uh, colleagues, any questions, comments? Okay, seeing none, thank you very much. We'll go to public comment on item two. All right, seeing none, then public comment is closed. And that was an information item. Item three, please. Item three, approve the minutes of the September 20th, 2016 meeting. This is an action item. All right, questions, comments? Seeing none, we'll open it up to public comment for item three. All right, seeing none, public comments closed. Uh, all right, thank you. Motion to approve by Commissioner Avalos, seconded by Commissioner Peskin. I don't know if oh. Ms. Laporte has something to say. Oh, no, sorry. No. <laughs> <laughs> a little early there. Okay. Second. All right, thank you. If we could do roll call vote, please. All right, on the minutes, Commissioner Avalos. Aye. Avalos, aye. Commissioner Breed. Breed is absent. Commissioner Farrell. Farrell is absent. Commissioner Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Commissioner Tang. Aye. Tang, aye. The minutes are approved. Thank you. Item four, please. Item four, recommend allocation of $12,713,969 in Prop K funds with conditions for two requests subject to the attached fiscal year cash flow distribution schedules. This is an action item. Thank you. Now we're ready for you. Anna Laporte, Deputy Director, Policy and Planning. Thank you. Good morning, supervisors or commissioners, rather. Um, you have an item before you today to allocate just over $12.7 million in Prop K funds. There are two requests. One is from the SFMTA, and this is for the fall protection um, project for the construction phase of work. And um, as the buses have been reconfigured over the years to create more space for passengers, more of the transit um, buses have their power and their fuel and their cooling and their electrical systems on the roof rather than inside or in the back or the bottom of the vehicle. And so this would um, update the fall protection um, system. And there's a picture on the slide that maybe we could put onto the um, 
onto the overhead for you on the next on the first slide, um, just to give you an idea of what's involved. So it would be upgrading the facilities. Um, there are also a host of um, electrical and system upgrades that would be required in addition to um, just the OSHA. Um, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration compliant fall protection system. So um, there would also be, there are electrical switches that are involved um, in terms of the po overhead power that's involved. So they're going to have to de-energize and put in new lighting systems as well. Um, so this request is for 12 million. It's for six different uh, maintenance facilities as well as um, one of the, as well as um, West Portal Muni Station to facilitate uh, building maintenance. The next request, the second of the two requests, is from um, Public Works, and this is for their annual curb ramp request, and the locations are identified in your packet materials. Happy to um, point you to the pages. Districts are throughout the city, two, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10. Um, the funding will update, I'm sorry, upgrade or renovate 65 new ramps, and they have identified, they being DBW, has identified 56 locations. And the locations are selected based on the ex disabilities, um, Americans with Disabilities Act prioritization criteria. Um, members of the public can request curb ramps um, online at www.sf311.org or by calling the um, 311 telephone line. Um, as well. So I'm available to answer any questions that you have, and also there are agency um, public uh, project managers here as well. Thank you for your presentation. Uh, just going back to the worker fall protection installations, um, I know that our CAC chair brought up the issue regarding the high costs at, at around $12 million. Can you just explain why the, why the high cost? Um, I'll do my best. Um, I, I, um, I don't see SFMTA staff in the audience, but these are specialized systems at very, you know, specialized maintenance facilities. And so um, you can tend to see higher construction management costs when there's a variability in the potential, um, you know, work that would be done because it is so specialized to those facilities. It's not just necessarily, and there are seven different facilities as well, so it's not just, you know, a blanket scope of work that would be applied to each of them. So, um, but I, I am happy to um, follow up if, if the committee wishes. We and, oh, sorry. Um, and so, uh, I mean, so about 14, actually I think it was about 14 and not just 12 for the total costs. Um, and what are the MTA staff using currently? Is it that you were completely replacing them or that they didn't exist or... Um, a yes. complete overhaul. Yeah, so, so, so it, it varies by facility. So, for example, at MME, at the Muni Metro East facility, there is an existing elevated platform, um, but there are gaps in the platform edges and that, um, and so that there's also lack of support railings, for example. And then you can compare that to um, the work for the Cameron Beach facility with the historic streetcar maintenance where, um, you know, there are structural strengthening that needs to be performed as well as adding dual rail systems for the, for tracks, two of the tracks, whereas other tracks don't even need, don't even have um, the two railing. And this is for the um, streetcar maintenance facility. So you also have trolley coach maintenance, um, uh, historics, 
LRV, you have different kinds of facilities as well, so that fits into that. This is not a one-size-fits-all. You have different types of vehicles that these folks are going to be on the roofs of maintaining. So each facility has a, has a relatively specialized need, but they will all be designed in compliance with OSHA standards. Okay. Commissioner Avalos? Thank you. Those are along, along the lines of my questions uh, because there was someone from the MTA to be here to uh, to share that and maybe uh, when this comes to the full TA that they could be available to answer any questions at that time. Absolutely. Um, this is a large allocation. Um, I understand this variability in terms of what each facility will have compared to another. Um, I guess I'm curious as well um, what, how often are falls are happening? Um, you know, I think it's important to protect the workers, but also um, I'm not sure if that's, you know, been an issue and how often are these, you know, whatever we have for catchment uh, is available to help someone or been, have there been injuries? That'll be, that'll be good information to have as background as well. Okay. Thank you. Commissioner Peskin? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't know what the time frame on this is, but it is kind of interesting that MTA is not here to answer the questions. The questions I was going to raise um, on the same issue, the fall protection uh, matter, is that we just built Muni Metro East. I mean, how? why are there gaps? Why aren't there railings? I mean, was that a design defect? Was that that the, wasn't constructed to, you know, our request? I mean, why? I mean, it's a brand-new facility. And then as to the cable car barn for a half a million dollars, I mean, I want worker safety, but... They've been painting the roofs of those cable cars for 150 years. I mean, it's not like there's no new roof-mounted equipment on the cable cars. Yeah, those are certainly good questions, um, and I am happy to address them from what I know of the projects. Um, you know, I, I do know that there are compliance and regulations that do get updated over time and I can certainly follow up to see if something has changed particular to MME yeah since OSHA it was is mentioned in here so are these yeah. OSHA mandates are we are we out of compliance with OSHA or are we just tricking this thing out yeah no the the, the project is to install fall protection systems that are compliant with OSHA regulations so that then leads to the thinking that what is there is not OSHA compliant at this point. But I will confirm. Has OSHA told us that? Or, I mean, is yeah. this something that could be considered to be grandfathered by OSHA? Are we under uh, some kind of OSHA mandate to do this? Or portions thereof? Um, that I, I, I don't know how far and what happens if you're out of compliance. I mean, I, I know that this is a worker safety. It's being couched as a worker safety um, capital project. Um, and so as far as what happens if you're out of compliance or how long we've been out of compliance or even if we are out of compliance or just the we're in compliance with a former mandate and now they've changed and now we need to upgrade the systems, um, we can certainly dig into more of the nuances of the, of the compliance issue. Yeah, and just to my colleagues, I, the cable car barn is in District 3, and I go there from time to time and say hi to those folks, and they raise a number of issues that I hear about, but I have not heard about this issue, but that doesn't mean it's not legitimate. Okay. 
And I'm wondering um, through TA staff if there's someone from SFMTA who would better speak to this here, or could we delay this until a little later if someone could come? Um, we might, if, if that is okay with the committee, um, I have a feeling it has to do with the, the start time of the meeting that um, folks okay. might be coming at 1030, um, but I'm, it, it's, it's certainly up to the committee. Okay, so I, I would like to suggest that maybe we delay um, item four until later, and because um, my other follow-up question was, which I asked TA staff as well, was I know that um, from the um, last um, transportation bond measure that we had passed, a large chunk was actually going towards uh, renovating our, our facilities, uh, immunity maintenance facilities. And so, you know, when they are rebuilt, or I, I don't know what the plans are for the timeline, but if we're going to be spending about $14 million, I'm just wondering how that plays into the timeline for uh, some of the other facilities that will be um, either renovated or completely rebuilt. Definitely. Do we have something to add here or? Oh, next item. Okay, so we're gonna, um, we're now joined by Commissioner Farrell and I think, uh, again, it seems that there's agreement that we will um, continue item four till later in this meeting. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, and then at that time, we will also take public comment. So at this moment, why don't we go to item five? All right, item five, recommend approval of the 2017 Prop AA strategic plan policies and screening and prioritization criteria. This is an action item. Thank you, we have Mike Pickford here. Good morning. Uh, Prop AA was approved by voters in 2010. It generates revenues from a $10 vehicle registration fee to fund transportation improvements and includes an expenditure plan that governs the program. Compared to Prop K, which has uh, revenues of about $100 million per year, the program is pretty small at closer to $5 million annually. Uh, while Prop K has 40 program categories, um, the Prop AA expenditure plan divides funds between just three categories, street repair, pedestrian safety, and transit reliability. To help this small program have a big impact, Prop AA is focused on quick-to-deliver projects that bring tangible benefits to neighborhoods citywide. Um, the Prop AA expenditure plan requires the Transportation Authority to develop a strategic plan, including a five-year prioritized program of projects for each category before any funds are allocated. We're in the final year of the program developed for the 2012 strategic plan, so it's time to develop a 2017 strategic plan with programming for fiscal years 2017-18 through 2021-22. We anticipate having $23.2 million available over the five years which is uh, slightly less than was available for the 2012 strategic plan due to an additional year of revenue collection before while well, the program was being set up at that time. Um, so the Prop AA strategic plan policy updates, or updates are um, guided by two key documents that we're recommending for minor revisions, and that's the action item before you this morning. Uh, the first is the Prop AA strategic plan policies, which provide guidance to staff and project sponsors on managing the program, including allocation and expenditure of funds. And second is the screening and prioritization criteria, which provide the mechanism to uh, evaluate and prioritize projects um, for funding within the three categories. We consider the proposed re um, revisions to both documents minor, as they're primarily focused on streamlining and clarifying language. Um, and adding references to initiatives such as Vision Zero. Uh, once this guidance is in place for the 2017 strategic plan, we will release a competitive call for projects to solicit applications from project sponsors. 
the call for projects uh, amount is based on new revenues that we anticipate over the next five years. You may recall we updated the Prop AA revenue forecast in February uh, based on actual revenue collected since the inception of the program, and we're recommending maintaining that same uh, forecast of about $4.8 million per year. Additionally, two projects have recently been completed under budget, so we have about a, another half million dollars to add to the pot. Um, finally, to provide a comfortable buffer against revenue fluctuations, uh, we're recommending setting aside $260,000 to restore the program reserve to $500,000, which is about 10% of annual revenue. Um, as you saw, each program, each Prop AA category uh, has a target percentage of total funds over the 30 years of the expenditure plan. Um, for the 2012 strategic plan, as some projects have been completed under budget, uh, things haven't quite lined up with those targets. So we're recommending setting the amounts available in each category to bring those uh, categories back in line with the target percentages. Um, you'll notice, for example, that uh, that will result in slightly more being available in the transit category versus the pedestrian category. Uh, so after this committee and the board act on this item, we anticipate releasing the call for projects by November 1st. We've already been discussing this upcoming call with eligible public agency project sponsors via our technical working group, and we plan to host a workshop for potential applicants in November. We intend to give sponsors until mid-January to submit applications, and after evaluating the applications, we'll be back to this committee in March with programming recommendations. Uh, you'll start seeing allocation requests for the first of the new projects at your meeting next June. Um, and finally, uh, while your attention is focused on Prop AA, I wanted to give you a brief update on the 2012 strategic plan. Uh, as amended, um, it would program $27 million to 22 projects, and uh, we're pleased that delivery is on track with $23 million having been allocated to date, and 11 projects are uh, already open for use, including the new uh, Transit Plans Plaza uh, pedestrian connector that just opened at City College on the 1st. Um, there's a, fa a fact sheet in your packet that has uh, information on the additional uh, completed projects. And we're anticipating bringing the two final requests for the 2012 strategic plan next spring. They'll be for transit improvements and paving on Geary. And uh, with that, I can take any questions. Thank you very much. Commissioner Avalos. Thank you. Um, I, I know the changes are minor, um, but just what you explained in terms of uh, the guidelines and and the other one, which is related to uh, how you evaluate projects, uh, could you explain like what the changes will be materially in terms of your work? Uh, it'd be great, thanks. Um, so, in terms of our, so we've we've done you know just in terms of the language, I, um, I mentioned we did a little bit of streamlining, such as um, we used to call out procurement as a separate phase. Um, we've rolled that into the construction phase, which is how we typically handle requests. Um, I think we have eliminated a couple of places where there was literally redundant language um, edited for, for clarity. Um, <coughs> uh, we've done a couple of things, um, like uh, if you have unexpended funds at the end of a phase that Prop AA funded, um, uh, we had um, previously said, that, you know, the, the language is a little bit ambiguous. It said you would return those funds to the to the project, even if the next phase was funded by another source, something like that. So now we're saying um, uh, if it's if it doesn't have a future Prop AA funded phase, um, that needs to return to the um, Prop AA pot. So some examples like that. Um, in terms of... Um, screening. Yeah, in terms of the, the screening criteria, um, we have uh, asked for... Um, 
consistency with uh, plans. Uh, we've tried to make that a little bit more flexible in terms of not just um, citywide adopted plans, but agency adopted plans, um, just to, to show that these projects are priorities of the, the agencies. Um, and uh, in terms of, um, we used to lump um, kind of a need, relative need, um, in terms of time in with relative need of safety. We've broken that out so that we're uh, focusing a general prioritization criteria on time sensitivity. And then um, we try to address um, safety concerns within the program-specific uh, prioritization criteria. Um, let's see, did, I, is that answering That's your great. question? Yeah. Okay, I, great. I, as a layperson, I didn't quite understand the language. So. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so, you know, so these, these criteria feed directly into how we score applications once we receive them. So it's um, you know, important for them to be a little bit wonky in terms of their precision. Thank you. All right, thank you very much. Uh, colleagues, any other questions or comments on item five? Okay, seeing none, then we're gonna go to uh, public comment on item five. If anyone would like to speak, please come on up. Okay, seeing none, public comment is closed. This is an action item, and since the House has changed, we'll do a roll call vote. Okay, on item five, Commissioner Ablos. Aye. Ablos, aye. Commissioner Breed. Breed is absent. Commissioner Farrell. Aye. Farrell, aye. Commissioner Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Commissioner Tang. Aye. Tang, aye. The item is approved. Thank you. Item six, please. Item six, recommend approval of San Francisco input on the Plan Bay Area 2040 draft preferred scenario. This is an action item. Thank you. We have Amber Crabb. Excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, Amber Crabb, I uh, am with the Transportation Authority. And so today, I think you've seen this every month, uh, Plan Bay Area, but we'll be, uh, we're nearing the finish line and uh, we're going to review and come up with a recommendation uh, for our input into the draft preferred scenario that MTC and ABAG uh, released last month. So as a reminder, uh, Plan Bay Area is basically the transportation and land use growth strategy for the Bay Area through 2040. Uh, and this is uh, administered and approved by the Metropolitan Transportation Commission and the Association of Bay Area Governments. Uh, Timeline-wise, we've been looking at this since uh, you approved the uh, goals and objectives uh, last September. Uh, since then, uh, MTC, we issued a call for projects. Uh, MTC has analyzed uh, the, the projects and the overall scenarios for um, how they stack up against performance measures. Uh, last month, they released the draft transportation strategies and land use scenarios for the Plan Bay Area. Uh, next month, they'll be adopting those, and then the final plan will be adopted in uh, between July and September of next year. With respect to the overall plan uh, and the investment strategy, uh, this, this shows that the plan has about $309 billion in it, uh, $74 billion of which is the discretionary dollars that MTC has to uh, give out to projects. As you can see by the pie chart, uh, the vast majority of it is for transit state of good repair and local streets and roads good of state of good repair with a minor uh, chunk of the pie, less than 10% for actual expansion projects. 
Uh, with respect to the, uh, so this is where we'll start to get into the input that we're proposing to provide, which is in attachment three of the, uh, excuse me, of the memo. Uh, basically, uh, with respect to transportation, uh, thumbs up, we're really happy. Essentially, they are meeting all of our goals and objectives by increasing investment in state of good repair and core capacity. Uh, and then with respect to the new starts, small starts, and core capacity funds in particular, which is the big transit expansion funds, uh, downtown extension, Caltrain electrification are included again in their list of priorities, but we're getting an increase in BART core capacity investment proposed. And then Geary Bus Rapid Transit and Better Market Street are San Francisco projects that are getting added to the list of regional priorities. The housing story is much less uh, good as you may expect. Uh, essentially, since between 2011 and 2015, uh, in the urban core, we, we built one house for every seven jobs created, leading, as you can expect, to um, significant increases in, uh, in costs of housing. This is just uh, a snapshot of the very aggressive assumptions that MTC and ABAG are making with respect to how much we have to produce in order to meet uh, what they project the need to be um, uh, through 2040. And this is just for the housing. The jobs projection is actually more aggressive. And uh, San Francisco in particular, both jobs and housing uh, are very aggressive uh, targets, more so than Plan Bay Area as shown here. Um, we have been working with uh, the planning department and they've looked at the numbers and think they're very aggressive but probably achievable within the realm of possibility. But that has to um, happen. The only way that can happen is significant investment and upfront investment of real money in the infrastructure we need to support uh, the growth as one of the key areas the region is proposing to uh, build both job housing and jobs. Uh, probably one of the biggest issues that's come up with the proposed preferred scenario is the equity component. Of the 13 different targets that it analyzed the scenarios, uh, the three that actually moved in the wrong direction uh, were you know, not even not achieving your goal, but actually making it worse was housing and transportation affordability, uh, increasing the risk of displacement, and then um, missing uh, access to jobs. And I think in San Francisco in particular, the affordability and the displacement issues are, are pretty huge. Uh, and MTC and ABAG are, are aware of this. They have heard from their commissioners and from the public that it is a huge concern. Uh, they're gonna do what they can getting to the draft preferred scenario approval in next month, but they've committed to um, between now and either between July and September when they're gonna be adopting the final plan uh, to bring back some more uh, potentially research and uh, potential policy measures that could be uh, implemented in the final plan. With respect to transportation, transportation is a tiny, tiny portion of when you look at the affordability for both transportation and land use. Um, we could do things to help, um, increasing in investment in things like late night transportation, uh, means-based fare programs, Vision Zero. Um, we could uh, make these kind of equity-based transportation improvements up front, uh, and then also um, do some way of prioritizing this regional discretionary funding for jurisdictions that are doing the right thing. Um, but as I said, transportation is just a small part of the overall um, problems. 
so with respect to land use, uh, clearly the solution is build, 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 and build affordable and make sure that uh, it's happening in a way that protects existing communities. Uh, some possible, there, there's no easy solution in this. I think we're all struggling to identify a solution. Uh, the ones that um, in brainstorming with the planning department and other jurisdictions across the region, um, there's always a need for more money, um, but the money we have is just gonna be a drop in the bucket. So we need to, to aggressively seek out uh, funding at the state and federal level, but also potentially consider at the regional level, maybe a jobs house, housing linkage fee, something like a parcel tax across the region uh, to really uh, demonstrate a financial commitment to affordable housing. Uh, financing is also really important in moving these projects forward, which could be done um, kind of creatively. Uh, and then providing what little support we have for uh, kind of creative pilot programs, things like community empowerment, um, uh, otherwise, and other pilot programs that could potentially be replicated throughout the region. Uh, as far as what's next, as I said, uh, we'll be, we've asked you to provide input uh, that we can send to MTC and ABAG this month for approval next month. Then we'll be working over the next year or so uh, as MTC uh, builds the draft scenario into the final scenario for adoption um, sometime between July and September next year. So I know that's a lot, it's moving very quickly now, uh, but would it be happy to hear uh, any input you have. Thank you very much for your presentation. Uh, Commissioner Avalos. Thank you, thank you for your presentation. And uh, I spent about two and a half, three years on ABAG, so I got to see a lot of the presentations over and over again for uh, the first Wimberia Grant Program. <laughs> yes. uh, actually, it was actually really, really informative for me, um, especially looking at how to uh, be able to work towards funds for transit-oriented development in my district, uh, and funding is a big issue. Um, so part of my work uh, to get funds for TOD in District 11 was to do the housing bond that the mayor had done last year, and getting the housing bond up to $310 million enabled projects in my district to get funded. Um, this has also been, um, you know, the effort for one Bay Area grant uh, money has been strong for District 11 to be able to get uh, Mansell uh, to be built, uh, and so we were able to, able to cobble together one Bay Area grant money as well as other MTC money and park bond money for that to happen. Uh, and it's a really critical, except there's no, these are just guidelines in terms of what we're adopting or want to put forward today. Um, and we have an issue, you know, in our, in, on our border with Brisbane that came up last year, last week about uh, this land that uh, is going to be uh, built on supposedly solely for office space. Uh, it underscores really the challenge about doing regional planning when you have you know, you know, cities, municipalities that are seeking only to, you know, look at their bottom line and not look at the regional needs that we have that we're all connected. Uh, and so that's been uh, really super important. San Francisco has been a leader uh, to really make sure, because we've been to make sure that we're actually hitting all of our goals around uh, the, uh, the, 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 the sustainable community strategy uh, and looking at 
transportation and housing has been huge in terms of the investments that we've been making as a city, and I think we continue to do that, and it's important that we adopt, uh, from our point of view, the strongest uh, you know, uh, priorities that we can in this process, so that would help to lead other uh, municipalities to follow suit. So um, if you are saying that what we have here are really strong guidelines that support our effort, uh, I will <coughs> like to hear that, and I'd like to know if that's the case, I would like to move forward to uh, to adopt. Yeah, just, just a clarification. We think the transportation is very strong. Um, the land use and the housing and job side, it's an incredible challenge. Uh, without additional resources, I think it'll be very difficult. I, I, you're right that we are leading the charge both respect to policies and creation and, and funding of housing, but it's a, it's a big lift. I think the region is thinking about what it can do, um, but there's limitations without a significant additional investment in housing. And a new fund source for it. So, as part of what our the input of the city and county of San Francisco is in the process, we are calling for more regional funds for yeah. housing. We're calling for greater equity in terms of housing around transportation, yes. serving communities that are left out of yes. strong connection between the two. Yes. So, I think if that's what we're putting forward, I want to you know okay. put my name Great. behind that. Yes. That's what we're saying. Thanks. Great. Thanks for those uh, comments. And uh, commissioners, any other questions or comments on this? Okay. Well, seeing none, then why don't we open up item six to public comment? Any members of the public Thank who you. wish to speak? <coughs> okay. Seeing none, public comments closed. And if we can get a motion on item six, please. Motion to approve. Thank All right. Motion by Commissioner Avalos, seconded by Commissioner Farrell, and uh, we are now joined by Commissioner Breed, so we'll do a roll call vote. All right. On item six, Commissioner Avalos? Aye. Avalos, aye. Commissioner Breed? Aye. Breed, aye. Commissioner Farrell? Aye. Farrell, aye. Commissioner Peskin? Aye. Peskin, aye. Commissioner Tang? Aye. Tang, aye. The item is approved. All right. Thank you. Item seven, please. Item seven, update on the rail yard alternatives and I-280 Boulevard feasibility study. This is an information item. All right, thank you. And we have Susan, and I apologize, I don't, can't pronounce your last name. Gigi. Gigi. Hello, supervisors. My name is Susan Gigi, and I'm the program manager for what's called the Rail Yard Alternatives and I 280 Boulevard Feasibility Study, also known just shortly as the RAB. Thank you. Um, RAB looks at the big moves in infrastructure that are coming to the San Francisco, including the Caltrain electrification, high-speed rail, and the Transbay Transit Center. While the projects are informed by each other, each of these big items are being planned and, construction, and constructed essentially independent of one another. Next slide. The RAB study has begun to better understand how these projects and others layer on each other to fully understand the impacts to the city as a whole and the southeast quadrant specifically. In addition, the study will provide vital information for the public and decision makers to make informed decisions for the area and the city, not just project by project. This slide provides a quick look at the schedule for the study. Our next public meeting is anticipated around the end of this year or the beginning of 2017, and, we'll, and at that meeting we'll be including full alternatives, schedule implications, estimates, benefits, and impacts. 
In addition to the community engagement that's being that's happened throughout the project uh, and will continue through the rest of the of the of the study, um, the community working group has been established. A community, the CWG is a diverse body made up of 22 representatives covering a broad interest of the communities surrounding Caltrain, I-280, and all sides of Mission Bay. Members represent area residents, CACs, large employers, developers, and advocacy groups, and allow for a more thorough assessment of the varying priorities and needs of the area as the study evaluates the community interests and impacts. And, and I apologize, how are the 22 seats uh, selected for this working group? <coughs> We actually put out uh, a request for um, interest and received uh, more than the 22 uh, seats. We had we had listed out what we thought were the 22 what, what we thought were the seats available and had people identify self identify as well as um, uh, uh, reaching out to uh, the entire area of the city and county of San Francisco. We put it up on our, our website. We um, specifically targeted CACs within the area. We contacted um, uh, both District 6 and District 10 supervisors uh, to, to um, let them know that we were putting together this citywide, uh, this um, community working group. Um, and that's, and then uh, uh, we went through the applications and um, uh, selected the individuals who are currently uh, sitting on the CWG. Okay, and so, um, and then when you say, uh, or who who ended up being this, the people selecting the 22 members? <clears throat> okay, so we have individuals. Um, so David uh, Brian David Shaw represents Soma District Six. Ron McGill represents the uh, District Ten. Uh, uh, Devon Shu Patel represents the Bayview CAC. Daniel Murphy represents the Eastern Neighborhood CAC. Corinne Woods represents the Mission Bay CAC. James Haas represents the SFCTA CAC. Um, Bruce Agate represents the TJPA CAC. Jackson Fonstock represents the South Beach Recon Mission Bay area. Brian Scully represents Petrera Hill. Uh, actually, we have multiple people from Petrera Hill. So Rick Hall, J.R. Epler, um, all kind of sit in the Petrera Hill area. Uh, Sophie Maxwell represents the Southeast. Um, Ratna Amin represents Spur. Jennifer Stein represents the California College of the Arts. Tammy Chan represents UCSF. David Brentlinger represents the business community in the area. Alice Light represents the housing advocacy group. Um, Nathan Mee represents the bicycle and pedestrian advocacy. Howard Strassner represents environmental and transportation. Ted Olson represents the senior and disability <coughs> community. And Adina Levin represents the tra transportation advocacy and business related enterprises. All right, thank you very much. <coughs> Sorry, you'll have to excuse me. I'm kind of getting over something. Um, there are five components to the study. Each component makes up a part of a comprehensive package of big moves to improve access and quality of life to the whole east side of the city. While the pieces are related, they all have independent value for the city. Most immediate and what I'm going to focus on today is component number one because it needs to be fully understood. In addition, the study also looks at potential loops for the, to add capacity to the Transbay Transit Center. Third, whether a southern rail yard in the south is possible to meet operation needs of high-speed rail and Caltrain. Fourth, the role of the I-280 freeway in the corridor and whether the northernmost 1.2 miles is most valuable to that community as an elevated freeway allowing trips to fly over the neighborhood or if, it, there, is a re, or if there are reasons to consider the potential to change the northern section into a surface boulevard. Please note that there has been some misunderstandings related to the study. 
Um, <coughs> most importantly, none of the options under considerations require any changes to I-280. Um, and something to note, not everything, not all of the components are likely on uh, the same timeline, but we are studying them together for the full picture. The first component includes the downtown rail extension or how to get the Caltrain surface tracks into the Transbay Transit Center. TJPA is currently constructing the Transbay Transit Center, as you know. It's shown in yellow on the, or orange on the graphic. Um, and it's slated for opening in December of 2017 for levels three, four, and five. Phase two includes uh, levels one and two, and that's the that will hold the train box and the concourse. Uh, and it will essentially connect the current Caltrain surface tracks from the 4th and King Rail Yard. It'll include an underground station at 4th and Townsend and all of the tracks within the Transbay Transit Center. All of the rail components, including the track, the concourse, the platforms, the fare gates, et cetera, are included in phase two of the Transbay Transit Center project. The current budget for the DTX is $4 billion and from TJPA, and, and TJPA, TJPA has stated that it can begin construction no earlier than 2019 and completed no earlier than 2026. The funding for the DTX has not been secured and some of the original funding slated for the DTX from the city through the Melarus district was used to pay for the building currently being constructed. But the DTX isn't the whole story. How we get from the current terminus, oh, sorry, it isn't the whole story. It only deals with how we get from the current terminus to the Transbay Transit Center. If we build the DTX, the city will grade separate, will have to grade separate both 16th Street and Mission Bay Drive. Those are the only two connections currently between the east side and the west side of the city in this area. Due to the gate, amount of gate downtime at each intersection or the time that the gates come down and the vehicles can't go across that intersection. This graphic shows the last plan that California High Speed Rail authority provided uh, concerning these two intersections as well as on the bottom left right hand corner it shows a representative example of what 16th street really could look like as a grade separated intersection <coughs> so with that in mind the first option under consideration for the first component as shown in green is not only just the DTX, but what happens to the city if we build the DTX as currently designed and environmentally cleared. This option includes the downtown rail extension is environmentally cleared in its existing alignment and under its existing construction methods. Caltrain electrified. The city trenches our streets at 16th and Mission Bay. And there are no additional connection points within the study to, to move across the city in the east-west direction. The other two alignments, Pennsylvania Avenue shown in orange and Mission Bay alignment shown in blue, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> include additional grade separation of Caltrain and high-speed rail or moving the Caltrain and high-speed rail tracks underground somewhere between the 22nd Street and Cesar Chavez area, which then opens up the street grid on the surface to allow more connection points between east, east and west side of the city and through Mission Bay. In both cases, the additional tunneling for the trains would be completed using tunnel bore machines similar to what is being constructed for the central subway. Each of these three alignments has its own opportunities and constraints, which the study is now investigating. <coughs> uh, 
if these opportunities remain feasible, then these would be the type of policy choices that the study team would bring to the board according to the schedule as laid out previously. Before that time, we'll also be um, fleshing out and to better understand the trade-offs between benefits, costs, schedules, et cetera, to aid in that future uh, decision-making. And before you ask to answer the questions about costs, we are currently in the process of preparing preliminary estimates of probable costs as well as potential schedule implications and anticipate taking both of those items to the public towards the end of this year. Um, and uh, that I have more information if you wanted to know more about each of the uh, other four components, but I thought I would stop there. I know that, that, that you wanted to know most, mostly about the alignment. Thank you. Commissioner Peskin. So through the chair, Ms. Gigi, the $4 billion number that you gave us for the current alignment, does that include the, those neo-brutal grade separations or does not include them? It does not include the grade separations that would occur at both 16th and Mission Bay Drive. So do you have a approximate number of what a public works project of that magnitude would be worth? So we are going through the process of um, uh, vetting all of those numbers and we'll have them uh, towards the end of the year as full alternatives. Well, that 16th Street rendering that you showed us looks like a massive undertaking and I'm, I don't do those kind of projects, but is a half a billion dollars in the ballpark for something like that? It's likely more than that. There are some utilities that have to be dealt with at, the, at the, that location as well, and that's a pretty deep, and, and the soils aren't great in that location. And the length of the what would be called the trenching or, or depressing 16th Street so that it gets under the freeway and under, I2, and under the Caltrain tracks would be pretty significant. And so we'd also end up either cul-de-sacking the intersecting roads or depressing those to meet the 16th Street new grade. Yeah, that looks like some 1950s-style stuff. Um, and in terms of environmental clearances, I mean, you've already <coughs> made it abundantly clear that of the $4 billion, or as you've now just said, relative to the grade separations close to past four and a half, up to $5 billion, the much of that money is not yet accounted for. As a matter of fact, some of the money, the Mellorus money, was used for phase one, the Transbay uh, <coughs> Terminal. But uh, in terms of environmental clearances, insofar as it's my understanding that the downtown extension alignment that we're looking at has been environmentally cleared, correct? Correct. They are currently um, completing a supplemental environmental impact statement and report. Um, it came out for a, a comment in December of 2015. Um, and they're hoping, I think the schedule is to, to issue an, a ROD early in 2017. Um, uh, the port, so the, uh, the two alignments that we're looking at, Pennsylvania Avenue alignment would utilize the exact same alignment of the downtown rail extension. So essentially the portion outside of the DTX would still have to be environmentally cleared um, and would be a separate uh, 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 um, endeavor. And the Mission Bay alignment would also have to be environmentally cleared. Um, but tunnel boring um, environmental clearance is slightly easier than the, the cut and cover and sequential mining that um, are the construction methods of the downtown rail extension. I mean, I guess the big question, I mean, this is all very helpful information, and insofar as it looks like you uh, appear to be wrapping up your work come 
this coming June. Um, the question is, at that point, if and I have, I don't really have an opinion on this yet, and we, I don't think any of us have enough information on it yet. But at that point, we would have to embark on an entirely new environmental document. And insofar as the backdrop to this is that the full commission voted to withhold some paltry $6.7 million, which in the grand scheme of a four to $5 billion project is nothing. But if we are going to proceed with some level of design, the question is, and, and we delay that some mm -hmm. number of months, are we really having an out year <coughs> delay that is much longer because of environmental review for another alignment? Yeah. I can't definitively answer that because we are going through schedule implications um, analysis right now. Um, I will have more information at the public meeting associated with all of the alignments and all of the elements associated with the, 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 um, the, the study. So you'll be able to fully understand all of the benefits, costs, um, all of the schedule implications, uh, how these things kind of fit together. Um, <clears throat> that being said, uh, the goal of everybody would be to make sure that high-speed rail and Caltrain can make it to the Transbay Transit Center. If not before, absolutely by when high-speed rail goes from LA to San Francisco, which currently is by 2029. And that was originally when the DTX was supposed to open. So just, I don't know if you um, remember that, but um, the DTX was always slated to start in 2029. 2023 something like that it, but to open by 2029 when high-speed rail was going from LA to San Francisco at that time what the, what high-speed rail did in February of this year was they switched instead of going from the Central Valley to LA first they came from the Central Valley to the same to San Francisco first and they're planning to come into fourth and King um, until the downtown rail extension or however you get from the current alignment to the TTC uh, is built and then relative to one of the things that I was asking about at our last plans and programs committee meeting, which was the widening of the throat mm -hmm. going into the Transbay terminal, is there any new information that might indicate that the, we don't have to widen it as far as much? So most of the uh, planning and engineering of the downtown rail extension has been completed by the Transbay Joint Powers Authority mm -hmm. as that is their... Um, legislative uh, uh, directive to, to move the, um, the to move the to, to provide the access from Cal, from Caltrain's current uh, uh, end of the line at basically at fourth and King into the Transbay Transit Center um, so I'm not specifically the right person there are some things that I think that we could look at uh, but I'm not sure as to what we could do. There's always value engineering and we can kind of take a look. And Hasn't there been some recent talk by the high-speed rail authority <coughs> about having shorter trains and not double constants? Yeah. So um, high-speed rail, uh, maybe two or three weeks ago, uh, originally they were planning on having almost 1,400 foot long train lengths. And two or three weeks ago they issued a letter to their engineers that stated that they were going to be moving to an 800 foot constant. So basically a half of a train of a consist uh, half of a train set essentially um, and so uh, instead of being 1400 feet which required the downtown rail extend or sorry the the Transbay Transit Center train box to be extended another block um, in in the graphic that had the DTX on it it's the it's the extension of the green behind the the, the orange box I think on slide three 
or no, it's on slide five, I think, a uh, seven. Um, uh, originally, the Transbay Transit Center that is being constructed is not was not going to be long enough to hold a high-speed rail train. So in di in the, in phase two with the downtown rail extension, they were going to bump out the east side by another block and extend that. Um, uh, with high-speed rail going to 800 foot train lengths, it is unknown to me as to whether or not they would still need to to uh, extend it. The train box is now big enough for 800 foot, but high-speed rail has not, and TJPA have not stated whether or not um, the extension is, would still be part of the downtown rail extension um, construction. And then relative <coughs> to the funding plan for the $4 billion, how's that supposed to work? So um, uh, so there is a funding strategy associated. The, uh, the, the TJPA in June of 2016 at their board meeting uh, laid out um, the funding sources that they anticipated going after, which included um, a new sales tax measure. And there are people from TJPA if they would like to. Would you, Scott, would you like to just quickly identify? Or I, I, I would rather not speak for TJPA. Sure, if we can have staff address the funding issue, it's a question I also had as well. So if you can please come on up, that would be great. Anyone who'd like to answer it? <laughs> Good morning, Commissioners. Mark Zabani, the Interim Executive Director with the Transbridge Joint Power Authority. Uh, Supervisor Piskin, can you restate the question? I, what the funding said. strategy for the downtown extension is? Yeah, the, the funding strategies that we laid out to the down, for the downtown extension at our the TCPA's June board meeting included the present monies that's available through Plan B Area 2013, $650 million in new starts that's expected to increase in the next Plan B Area, 350 in uh, transportation funding from the SFCTA, uh, $557 million from uh, high-speed rail, oh, thank you, from high-speed rail, and $300 million in uh, bridge stalls. This is monies that the region has already Vouch for that's going to be available for the DTX in Plan B area 2013. We also have between 270. By my rough calculations, you just got us to about less than half of the four billion. I'm getting there. I have a. Got it. <laughs> uh, we also have 83 million dollars in San Francisco committed uh, sales tax, 19 million dollars in uh, San Mateo County sales tax. Uh, we have seven million in ex existing bridge stalls. We have between 275 million and 375 million in Melarus. That's the amount remaining from what we use for phase one. We also have uh, TI or tax increment between 200 million to 340 million available uh, for TI after we funded phase one. We have, we have 45 million expected from the sale of block four. This is uh, part of the tra temporary transit terminal that's available once we open the new terminal, we will we'll sell that land. And we're, uh, we have a passenger facilities charge between $865 million to $1.9 billion. The passenger facilities charge that we've uh, put together, that's based on a 2004 environmental document that's approved. It con contemplated passenger facilities charge. For this uh, funding plan, we've updated today's dollars. What it includes is between 2 and $3 for Caltrans, Caltrain passengers. Uh, to take him from Fourth and King to a transit center, 
currently Caltrain passengers that desire to come to the transit district, to, to, to the financial district, <coughs> excuse me. Once they, they embark from the 4th and King Station, they'd probably take a Muni bus to come to the transit center or to the financial district. In lieu of paying Muni, <coughs> they, would pay it, we, they would pay a passenger facilities charge. Currently, when we did the calculations, if a transit rider uses a Muni pass, uh, monthly Muni pass to get from 4th and King to the, to the financial district, they'll pay approximately $1.60 in today's dollars as a Muni fare because it's $70 a month, you divide it by 44 trips, 22 each way, comes to $1.60. You escalate $1.60 to uh, 2026, it becomes approximately $2. So what we're advocating is for um, passenger facilities charged between $2 and $2.5 uh, for Caltrain and approximately between 8 and $10 for uh, high-speed rail passengers. High-speed rail passengers, when they get to Fourth and King, if there is no transit DTX or transit center phase two done, they would have to take Uber or a taxi to get to the financial district. That's gonna cost them between 8 and $10 or more in 2026 dollars. So there is no, the, even though it's passes a facilities charge, it's not, there is no out-of-pocket cost for these riders because they're already paying it to some other operator for them to be able to get from Fourth and King to the financial district. So they get to stay in the, uh, the train and it'll take them to the transit center without them having to embark and uh, take another mode of transportation to get to the financial district. If I may, one quick question. Um, the 865 million to a billion dollars that you're anticipated to generate from the passenger facility charge, is that just assuming only San Francisco is implementing this? Charge. Yeah, yeah, let me. It's between 865 million to 1.9 billion dollars. Um, no, this is for Caltrain. This is Caltrain board and High Speed World have to have to agree to it. It's uh, the, the actions would be done by the Caltrain board and the High Speed Rail board, and there will be passengers using Caltrain and High Speed Rail. Sorry, did you have a follow-up? No, no. So a few things on that. One is the What's the ridership that goes right now to Fourth and King? I don't have the exact numbers. What we did is we took what Caltrain. Oh, you know I that number? That. Okay, go ahead. About I'm glad you 30, have that information. About thirty thousand. No, actually, in uh, 2016, the average daily ridership at the Fourth and King rail yard was just shy of fifteen thousand passengers per day on Caltrain. Um, in 2030, the ridership, if it goes all the way to the Transbay Transit Center, is supposed to be around 30,000. And then in high-speed rail, they don't have 2030 numbers, they have 2040 numbers, and that's an additional, I want to say, 32. So it's approximately 60 to 70,000 people once the, TJP, once the Transbay Transit Center is up and running for many, many years. So I'm just doing the rough math on that because you don't have that kind of ridership on weekends. So if you net out weekends and you end up with, I mean, that's like yeah. $15 million a year. I don't know how that gets you into the we, hundreds of millions. We can share that information with the uh, supervisor Tuscan. We had our financial analyst take the ridership numbers that we have from high-speed rail, take the ridership numbers that we have from Caltrain and run the numbers and give them to us. But again, as part of the asked that we had for the SFCT board was to do a ridership study. We need to confirm these numbers. We're doing with what we have. We're giving the information with the numbers that we have. Obviously, we have to vet these numbers out. And to do that, we need to do a ridership study to find out not uh, who comes to Caltrain. We know how many people <laughs> come to Caltrain and Fourth and King right now. 
We can count them. We have the counts. The question becomes how many of them come to the financial district? How many of them get on Muni, ride their bikes, do it? And, and that's the number that we need to zero on, on and do a robust ridership study to do that. And the same for high-speed rail. We need to vet the high-speed rail numbers to find out exactly what they are. Are they optimistic? Are they pessimistic? And at the same time to figure out who, who, how many of them are going to come to San Francisco versus uh, the, the stop before. Well, two so that's on, work in progress. I, I mean, two things on the high-speed rail numbers. Issue number one is the elephant in the room is that they are wildly optimistic. I mean, those numbers were backed into to come up with the funding strategy for high-speed rail, and they are dubious at best. But the other issue is that high-speed rail is predicated on a San Francisco to L.A. trip being no more expensive than an airplane trip. And so that ultimately is the constraint. And to the extent that San Francisco starts putting fat passenger facility fees on and San Jose starts putting p passenger facility fees on, we will exceed that constraint and doom high-speed rail. I mean, it just seems like a house of cards. Okay, let, me, let me, if I can address that. If we don't, but it's, you know, the question is <clears throat> with the passenger facilities that we're advocating for is whether you build the DTX or not. If you don't build the DTX, it's simple. They get off, high-speed riders come into Fourth and King. They get off at Fourth and King, and they're going to pay Uber or a taxi to get to the financial district. They've got to get there somewhere, and they've got their luggage. So we're telling them, don't pay Uber, don't pay a taxi, stay in the train, and give us that $8 or $10 passenger facility. Caltrain riders will always have the choice. Fourth and King will still be available. They can get off and walk, or they can stay in the train and come to the transit center. So it's, it's really a choice. If we don't build it, they'll just get off at Fourth and King and do what they're doing right now. If we, will, we build it, we would give them that option. And I'm not saying that the, uh, the funding plan that I've presented to you is, has no holes in it. It's a starting point for us to be able to fully fund the project. It's a $4 billion endeavor. It's not going to come easy. Uh, it's, it will involve TIFIA and RIF loans and so forth because having a passenger facilities charge starting in 2026 and for the 30, 40 years, we need to borrow against that. And we have to go to the federal, uh, uh, our federal partners to, through, through the credit programs to do that. What I'm saying is that we do have a significant amount of funding available my, minus the passenger facilities, and this is work in progress. <laughs> and again, I, I mentioned before, this is a regional project. It has to have the support of the region for it to be, able to deliver, to be able to be delivered. If there's no support in the region, it's not going to get delivered. Question. Um, so we keep stating that this is a $4 billion estimated yeah. project. Um, but as someone had answered Commissioner Preskin's question earlier, it doesn't include uh, the potential grade separation that would need to be done at 16th Avenue, potentially. So how come we're not including that cost in there? It seems like it would be... Quite high. Yeah, our our environmental document and the alignment that's approved stops short of uh, conforms to the existing track shorts of short of 16th Street. So we're not uh, does not we don't extend to that area, and that's why we're not making improvements in that area. What Susan presented is the two options: the Pennsylvania Avenue is our option. They will provide the improvements needed between our conform point and the 22nd uh, Street station for Caltrain. That would be like a follow-up project that would enhance 
the DTX. It's not part of the DTX scope. So, I, I, I mean, I, I get that it's not, uh, I guess, it's not part of scope. However, um, I mean, it is kind of part of the project, and so eventually we're going to have to find the money for that potential work. So I'm just wondering what are some ideas around funding for that portion? That would be a, a follow-up project. Would be uh, basically piggybacking on what Susan provided. If we go with the Pennsylvania Avenue alignment that she has, that would under, further underground the DTX into a 22nd Street station for Caltrain, and grid separates all the streets in between. Uh, for our project, what we did to accommodate that is we built a, a tunnel stub, cost of about, about 100 million dollars, to allow us to be able to extend the DTX further great separate without impacting the operations of the trains. So, I'm sorry, I'm just going to ask you one yeah. more time. Um, how do you think we're going to find the funding source for the, the, the potential the, great I, separation? We would have to start the environmental document. How about I use my lifeline? This is Megan Murphy, the project manager. For Go for it. <laughs> Hi, commissioners. Megan Murphy, I'm the phase two project manager uh, for the program management team for TJPA. Just wanted to let you know that actually the grade separations are not part of our scope because they're not actually being environmentally cleared by the high-speed rail authority because they're not required by the CPUC at this time with the anticipated level of service. I understand that, but I'm just trying to get a better grasp of the sort of um, bird's eye view down the road. Um, what are our general thoughts around funding for Let it? Let me do another lifeline. I have to bring in Philly <laughs> here. Because that's and the funding partner. That, Commissioner we, Peskin. We, we've got a hospital with an emergency facility on the other side of those tracks. I mean, there's got to be a way to get to UC. Sure. So, uh, Chair Tang, Tilly Chang, Executive Director, just as with this original project, each of these large you know, mega projects will take a regional, federal, regional, and local approach. Um, I think the first thing before us, funding plan will always be a challenge, but the greatest challenge is to decide, you know, what is San Francisco's you know, ideal alignment. So to confirm that will be key. Certainly we want the grade separation to occur, which um, could be an additional significant increment to cost. Uh, it's not just a San Francisco issue. This is a regional investment. This is a statewide um, facility as well. So I think we would need to bring in the federal partners, the state, the regional, as well as our local traditional sources. In addition, non-traditional sources or other sources that we have brought to bear on prior phases of the project, including land-based uh, funding sources. This could be another uh, um, facilities district. It could also be um, potential tax increment, those types of approaches of what we call value capture, because certainly whatever um, uh, investment we make, it will confer some value to the adjacent area. And I believe the planning department through Susan's study is also looking at that opportunity. Um, there's also potentially tolls and toll revenue and any number of other potential sources we could add to the, to the funding mix. So, um, and so I know, Director Chang, you mentioned that, you know, just figuring out the alignment is, is first and foremost uh, the most important. And so, um, based on the presentation, it looks like we might get some sort of clarity around that in this winter. Is that what it is? Yeah, so um, in uh, late this year, early next year, we'll be going to the, to the public with, <clears throat> so the five components each have options. I've shown you the three options for component number one. There's component. There's options for each of the five components. We're putting, we're combining those options into full alternatives, and that's what we're costing schedule schedule impacts, um, benefits, uh, 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 all of that information. We're taking that to the public in um, late this year, early next year, 
And then um, we'll be coming back to you as well as, as, as the Board of Supervisors um, with that information. And then we're hoping uh, to come back again somewhere around June with a conversation as to how should the city really look in the future and, um, and where do we want to go with these big moves that are coming. Uh, and if we, don't, if we don't plan and execute them um, with a full understanding, these are 100-year decisions. And so um, we're not going to get another bite at the apple um, for 100-plus years. So we need to fully understand what we're doing and uh, and make the best decisions for the southeast and for the city as a whole. Okay, so um, uh, <coughs> it would be great to either come back to the maybe the plans and programs committee then when you have that information and the various options. <coughs> and the last thing I wanted to go back to address is um, regarding the kind of representation in terms of the, the community or the advisory body. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that there was um, mention that there was a, someone who represented the SFCTA. Yes. Um, but I don't believe that is the case, and I know our CAC chair is here. Um, just wanting to make sure that we have that comprehensive representation on there. So I don't know if that's something we can work out. Mm -hmm. um, maybe we can address that with the CTA, but it seems like um, I believe it was Commissioner Haas who's not really on there okay, or not representative of the CTA. In addition, the CWG meetings are open to the public and anyone can attend. Our next meeting is October 18th. And if you go to sf-planning.org slash RAB, R-A-B, there is a link on there to the CWG, and you can find out where it is, what it is. You can get the presentations from the previous meetings. You know, we'll be updating those as we go through the process. Right now, we're meeting almost monthly, so we've had two meetings. This will be our third, um, <clears throat> and uh, we've provided a walking tour of the area. It's and it's really kind of fascinating to see um, uh, how this group is kind of um, uh, really delving into the specifics and understanding how these things truly do. It's a spider web. Like you touch one of them and it ripples through the entire process. Um, so it's a, it's, it, I always say that I've been with the project for, um, you know, two plus years now and I still get headaches five days a week uh, because it's pretty, it, it's, it, these are big moves and we want to make them right. Absolutely. And so if I could um, ask you to maybe uh, connect with our CAC chair Absolutely. just to make sure that there is someone from the TA, that would be great. Uh, so Commissioner Peskin. I, I just, for the edification of this <coughs> panel, if Ms. Gigi, you could just give us your bona fides and your history in this type of work. Um, okay, so I am both, I have a master's in both planning and engineering, civil engineering from the University of Washington. I have a PE uh, and have um, planned, designed, constructed, operated, and maintained all modes of transportation, including rail, bikes, pedestrians, um, transit agencies. Uh, and so, um, I mean, I've been in working for the consultant world and the public world. Uh, for I'm not going to say how many years, but it's uh, got a two in front of a zero <laughs> plus. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, colleagues, any other questions or comments? All right. Well, to be continued, and we look forward to hearing back from all of you in the winter. All right. So this was an information item, but we'll open up item seven to public comment. Any members of the public wish to speak? Um, I did want to, uh, Chris Waddling, uh, Transportation Authority uh, Assistance Advisory Committee Chair. Um, thank you, Commissioner Tang, for uh, uh, asking uh, Ms. Gigi to uh, get in touch with me about uh, being on the committee or having representation. Um, 
I appreciate that. Um, regarding the, uh, the funding of the uh, grade alignment at 16th Street, I absolutely believe this should be part of the scope of this. A um, billion dollars is going to have to be spent one way or the other. Uh, whether that gets, uh, 16th Street gets great, uh, great re realigned or, um, or you get uh, Pennsylvania, that, that money is going to have to be found somewhere uh, in order to keep that hospital running. Uh, I work at Mission Bay. Uh, at UCSF, and uh, I, I, I walk this area every day. The, uh, as you, uh, Commissioner Peskin pointed out, the, the neo-brutalist neo approach um, of, of the 1950s uh, of the grade separation at 16th Street is, is not going to work. Um, I would be very disappointed to see that happen. Um, there are new, new homes being built around that area. It's becoming a, a vibrant neighborhood. Uh, and to grade separate 16th Street would just destroy that. Uh, so I, I hope, hope that that uh, is, weighs heavily on, on this decision. Um, finally, um, I may ask, it's just a point of uh, how things are presented. Uh, oftentimes the images that we get, it's kind of a silly little thing, but uh, this is a complicated project and to have to rearrange all of our thinking on looking at these images uh, and how they, how we see them, it'd be nice to have them all the same way every time. So that, that's all. Thank you very much. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Commissioners, I'm Jim Haas. I am indeed not um, part of your CAC. Um, I'm on the RAB because I am a member of a different CAC, the one that's served for approximately 20 years, um, responsible for overseeing the building of the housing um, next to the terminal, uh, we are in our final stages. We should be out of business in a year or two. Um, I also am uh, a member of the Public Affairs Committee of the Chamber of Commerce, so I bring that aspect to the thing. Uh, the, the RAB 22 people are a very distinguished group, and it's uh, chaired now by Ron Miguel, who you all know. Uh, I think uh, you would have difficulty finding a more experienced group of people. There's always room for more. But uh, I think you can rest assured that it's a, it's a very substantial group. Um, the, the, the project, I think, was misnamed because it has I-280 in its title. And uh, earlier in the year, there was a lot of hyperventilation going on over that the whole project was designed to tear it down. Ms. Gigi in her slides forgot to mention that that's a, a vague option in the future. The, the heart of what we are doing is dealing with how to bring the train downtown. And I can assure you in, uh, from our first two meetings that that's where everybody's attention is. There's nobody there talking about tearing down 280. In fact, there's probably a, a group of people who would be highly opposed to that. I don't know. Uh, the last thing I want to say is that, as I mentioned to you a, year, a month ago, the, the, the Trans Bay um, extension that uh, has been before you was created almost 15 years ago, before Mission Bay came to life. Those trenches that Supervisor or the Peskin mentioned are 20th century. They're totally out of the question for today. I met with UCSF. They couldn't live with that. The California College for the Arts is expanding their campus next door, and they're opposed. So we need to rethink this. Thank you. Thank you very much. Any other members of the public who wish to speak on this item seven? Seeing none, public comments closed. And again, that was an information item. Uh, so at this time, I believe that we have someone here for, um, or he's, is he still on his way? Oh, I'm sorry? 
Okay, item eight first. Okay, all right, we'll go to item eight then. Item eight, update on the freeway corridor management study. This is an information item. Thank you, is this uh, Andrew Heidel? Uh, yes, good morning. Um, Andrew Heidel, senior planner with the Transportation Authority. Um, so as mentioned, this item is an update on the current status of our ongoing freeway corridor, got it, freeway corridor management study, um, phase two, and we'll also include a brief guest presentation from the staff at the Alameda County Transportation Commission regarding their experience with one of the potential options that the staff is exploring as part of this study. Uh, first, I'd like to start with a quick refresher on the freeway corridor management study. The study was a follow-on task from the 2013 San Francisco Countywide Transportation Plan, which recommended exploring ways to better manage our existing freeway assets in San Francisco. The study is funded by a Caltrans planning grant and a Prop K application and focuses on the US 101 and I-280 corridors for travel to and from downtown San Francisco, the eastern neighborhoods, and points south. Um, note that this study is excluding the Bay Bridge and the I-80 between the Central Freeway and the Bay Bridge, but uh, we anticipate to be able to cover those in future phases of the project. Um, there is a real need to explore options in this area. So by 2040, it's anticipated that over 100,000 new person trips per day will travel through the corridor, which without any interventions would be enough to fill one peak period bus per minute. Uh, it's important to mention that this is illustrative only. As we know, things like DTX, Caltrain electrification, high-speed rail, and other projects will help relieve some <laughs> but not all of this demand. Uh, additionally, Muni's recently released equity strategy identified a performance gap for a number of bus routes uh, and communities served by the bus routes in this corridor, such as the 14X and the 8VX. Um, it's also important to note that freeways serve both regional and local travel needs, so it's key that we include our partners, Caltrans, SFMTA, MTC, and San Mateo County to the south in this uh, study and process. Uh, the FCMS is divided into two phases. So um, phase one, uh, uh, adopted by the SFCTA board in March 2015, identified six major goal areas to frame the evaluation of alternatives in this phase two. Uh, many of the goals are focused around a few key bounding principles. Uh, number one, that there's no appetite for any significant freeway construction or expansion in San Francisco, and that the objective should be focused on better managing the assets that we have today while ensuring equitable access and distribution of benefits across the various communities that use the freeways. Uh, in this case, in particular to that last point, better management does not just mean for cars, but there's an understanding that travel time savings and reliabilities on freeways can serve as a platform for highly competitive transit service, expanding mode choices for travelers in the corridor. Uh, this means that we can evaluate alternatives through an equity lens, meaning that the ensure equitable access that you see in the final goal there applies not only to drivers, but to transit users as well. Uh, the phase one report also identified a range of alternatives uh, that could be used to help move people more efficiently on the freeways. Um, some of those that you see up here. Phase two will be evaluating this range of options against the existing conditions data collected as part of the phase two study and their impact on the goals and objectives that we just looked at on the last slide. Some of these strategies fall into what we call operational technologies, the adaptive signal control, uh, real-time information, et cetera, which uh, focus on providing travelers with more information to be able to make the most efficient choices with respect to uh, routes or avoiding any collisions or incidents on the freeways. 
Others fall into a category that includes more active management, such as ramp metering, uh, HOV, or better known as carpool lanes, or HOT, or as they're called in this region, express lanes, uh, which are both two different flavors of what we call managed lanes. So a managed lane can take a variety of shapes. So that's anything from a carpool lane where access is restricted at certain times um, to vehicles carrying a certain number of passengers, a transit-only lane, or as I just mentioned, what's called an HOT, a high occupancy toll or express lane, where carpools with the minimum designated number of passengers, including buses, travel for free, but others have the option to pay in to use the lane. Uh, express lanes have the advantage of being able to be used to their full capacity while still maintaining reliability and travel savings for those that carpool, use transit, or have paid to use the lanes by only allowing a, um, the amount of vehicles that can fill the lane but not cause it to slow down or degrade to use the lane. Uh, these types of lanes have been implemented in California and the Bay Area for a number of years, though only recently have we begun to see plans for these types of facilities on our side of the Bay. Uh, the systems are implemented and operating in Alameda and Santa Clara counties today, with the segment in Contra Costa County scheduled to open soon. Um, I'd like to take a moment now to introduce uh, and here to discuss their experience with planning for implementing and operating a managed lane system in Alameda County. Uh, it's Art Dow, the Executive Director of Alameda County Transportation Commission, as well as Elizabeth Rutman, a Senior Engineer for the Alameda County Transportation Commission. Welcome to the both of you. And uh, Commissioner Robles, did you have a question? I can wait till the end. Okay, thank you. Good morning, Commissioners. Liz Rutman. I am the Alameda County Transportation Commission Operations Manager for our Express Lanes Program. Uh, and I wanted to talk to you today about uh, Alameda CTC has been operating Express Lanes since 2010. This presentation will give you a little bit of the history of uh, the why we operate express lanes, the how we came to operate express lanes, and the what now of our express lane program. In the late 1990s, or in the 1990s, thousands of jobs were created in Silicon Valley, and this caused a shift in the way commuters uh, got around the Bay Area, uh, changed our commute patterns drastically. At that time, the Sonol grade on I-680 was identified as a top congested corridor. So in 1998, the Solutions on Snow Coalition was formed. It was tasked with identifying funding uh, specifically to implement a southbound <coughs> HOV lane as quickly as possible and then to look for more permanent solutions. Uh, after examining the corridor, the nature of the travel patterns in the corridor, the transit options in the corridor, they settled on identifying it as an express lane corridor. It was kind of a new up-and-coming type of thing to do these HOT hot lanes, take an HOV lane and toll the unused capacity so that single occupant vehicles could make use of the excess capacity by paying a fee. So how do you implement an express lane? Uh, first you need funding. So we had the 2000 Measure B sales tax leveraged for other state and federal funding. Uh, we also needed to be a joint powers authority. So at the time, Alameda CTC didn't exist. We were the Alameda County Congestion Management Agency and the ACTIA, Alameda County Transportation Investment Agency, I think is the acronym. Uh, the two agencies, along with Santa Clara VTA, formed the Sonola Smart Carpool Lane Joint Powers Authority uh, to become a joint powers authority. They then got the legislation of AB 2032, which allowed uh, the tolling of the Sonola grade I-680. That same legislation also allowed the ACCMA to toll a second corridor uh, within Alameda County, yet to be determined. 
The third thing you need when you implement a, uh, an express lane is you need you need consensus building between the public, uh, the politicians, and the other agencies involved in it. If you don't have consensus, it's all going to fall apart. There are a lot of political issues surrounding express lanes. Um, you have a lot of tolling policy issues that you're going to have to establish before you can start your design and, and consideration of your express lane. What kind of access do you want? Is it a limited access or a continuous access? Is it fully separated or is it parallel with the general purpose lanes? What kind of hours of operation do you want? Generally speaking, we have HOV lanes during peak commute hours. In Alameda County, we went with all-day tolling from 5 a.m. to 8 p.m. Um, so that we didn't have to break in the middle of the day. So that we still toll in the middle of the day, even though they're sort of bottom-line pricing tolls. Uh, what kind of enforcement do you want? What kind of HOV do you want to allow in the lanes, HOV 2, HOV 3 plus? What about the clean air vehicles and how can you deal with them? What kind of performance requirements do you want? Um, there are a lot of things you have to deal with for tolling policy, and then you have the interagency agreements. Uh, we have agreements with Caltrans for maintenance. We have agreements for Caltrans for construction, then for maintenance. Uh, we have agreements with CHP for enforcement of the HOV lanes to have additional patrols uh, during the peak commute hours. I have an agreement with VADA for revenue collection services because we are not a state DOT. Some of the other states like Washington and Minnesota, the DOT does all of these things. But because here in the Bay Area and even in Southern California, since we're not the DOT, we can't do everything and we need help. Um, so we have all of these interagency agreements. They take time and patience uh, and a cooperative nature. This is a timeline, I don't know why it's animated, that's new, uh, that shows simply the steps that it took to get to the 680 Seoul uh, Southbound Express Lane. It took 12 years from concept to reality, um, which is kind of long. Uh, 580 came along a little bit faster. Uh, our graphic shows where we have our express lane. This is a limited access with three entry points, three exit points. It is dynamically priced. Uh, meaning it is priced based on congestion, so in the most congested times of the day it is a higher price. It allows for people to adjust the time that they want to use it to move to the shoulders of the peak hour where pricing is lower. Uh, the total system cost was $41 million. That's just the price for the tolling infrastructure, not the HOV lane construction, but just the tolling infrastructure uh, for a 14-mile stretch. We're now in the process of doing final design for a northbound express lane. At the same time, we're going to convert our limited access southbound lane to a continuous access southbound lane, which will allow additional vehicles to enter and exit the corridor. Our I-580 needs were identified in the early 2000s. In 2005, it was identified by the ACCMA as a potential express lane corridor because of its major goods movement corridor and also its commuter traffic coming in from the San Joaquin Valley. It took until 2012 to get an HOV lane. Uh, there were some hiccups along the way with that. Uh, unrelated to some of the other things that took I-680 too long. Once we had the HOV lane, we went right forward into an express lane construction in 2014. And in this past February, we opened our I-580 lanes in both directions, eastbound, westbound. Eastbound has uh, two lanes. Westbound has one. It's full continuous access. Um, it runs roughly from the I-680 out to Greenville Road at the base of the Altamont Pass. It it's a 12-mile corridor, and the infrastructure for the tolling system cost about $55 million. Opening day is just the beginning when you want to operate express lanes. So please don't think that once you have it built, everything stops there. Uh, we have operating uh, expenditures. We have monitoring that we do for the system. Um, only we control what the lanes say. If there's an incident in the 
in the general purpose lanes that requires opening into the express lanes for the <coughs> added capacity, we have to do it, which means Caltrans or CHP needs to contact us. So we monitor for that. We monitor for performance. We monitor for our equipment uh, and failures. We have a maintenance contractor who goes out and corrects the equipment. Uh, it, it is an ongoing process, um, but it's a lot of fun, actually. Uh, some of the things that we've learned from being an operator uh, and that we've been sharing with the other agencies, enforcement matters. Our I-680 system does not have the license plate capture system that our I-580 system does. So our I-580 system with its license plate capture system means that everybody going through in our express lanes, I know who you are, and I will send you a bill if you don't have a fast track account. On I-680, I don't have that yet, and when I get it, all those people who have been cheating and using the lanes inappropriately are going to start to get bills in the mail. <laughs> access control matters. Whether you're continuous access, limited access, if you're physically separated or not, it makes a difference. Um, we see on I-680 we have a lot of people jumping the double white lines. We're now looking at it and we've looked at it and found that we don't need to have a limited access corridor in that area because of the nature of the corridor being so long. A continuous access would allow more people to access it, give a little more freedom and mobility <coughs> to the system. Uh, so we're going to be converting that one. Outreach matters. People still don't understand how express lanes work. There's still a misunderstanding about fast track flex accounts and we're continuously doing outreach on that. Um, con construction matters. So we've done a lot of convert it, build an HOV lane first and then convert it. Uh, that takes more time and more money than just go out and build your express lane all in one shot with making HOV uh, either reduced fare or free for HOVs. So the more you can plan in advance and know where you want to be at the end, the more expedient you can be and, and conservative the funds that you can be in the beginning. But we had a lot of benefits for both corridors. On I-680, we've reduced travel times in both the express and general purpose lanes. We've increased vehicle and person throughput. We've reduced queues at key congestion points. Um, most people are interested in how many people and how much money. So between January and August of 2016, we average about 78,000 toll trips per day. Uh, we work Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. 78,000 trips per day at about $190,000 in gross revenue. And from that, we've been paying all our bills. Uh, uh, I-680 has been in the black since fiscal year 1415. I-580 has an uh, average speed differential of about 20 to 25 miles an hour in the express lanes versus the general purpose lanes. Um, because we're continuous access, I don't really want to see anything more than that. I think higher speed differentials in continuous access could be a safety issue. So um, it is still a faster, more reliable trip, and that's what we are selling. As a selling a product, we are selling a faster, more reliable trip on I-580. Uh, from February to August of this year, we are now averaging 700,000 total trips per day of which about 280,000 are toll-paying trips. Uh, it is bi-directional, so it has more use than I-680. We have about 32% <coughs> are toll-free. That's your HOVs plus your clean air vehicles, your transit vehicles. 32% toll-free use, 56% toll use, and we only have about a 12% violation rate. And those violations are all getting violation notices by mail. We hope to get more people signed up for Fast Track through that violation system. We're still in the ramp-up period. Uh, we still have ongoing outreach. But all in all, it's been a really great ride. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. Finally had a chance to drive through one of those recently. Uh, Commissioner Avalos, did you want to speak now or later? I'll wait till all the presentations are All right. We will continue then.
Sorry, uh, thank you very much for that presentation, Liz. Um, I think, uh, as, as Liz identified as part of that presentation, identifying the needs of the system and what we're trying to solve for is key, and quantifying those uh, is the first step to developing any freeway management system. Obviously, here in San Francisco, we're <clears throat> excuse me, a number of steps behind where Alameda County uh, is, but we'd like to catch up. Um, so what's, uh, what you see on the screen right now is um, some of the data that we've been collecting as part of the freeway corridor management study phase two over the past few months. So we've been using some big data vehicle speed sources uh, and field observations over the spring to help quantify where we see recurrent congestion on the freeways in San Francisco today. Um, the morning peak um, is usually from about 7 a.m. to 9 a.m., um, which is what you see here. We have a lot of congestion inbound to the hospital curve area on 101 and inbound on 280 approaching 101 as well as um, coming into the ramps at the end um, of 280 in um, SOMA. Uh, the evening peak is much longer, 2 p.m. to 6 p.m., sometimes even 7 or 8 p.m. Uh, the congestion also is a little bit more widespread in uh, the Soma area, and we have some key points of congestion heading into San Mateo County, and again, southbound on 280 around Cesar Chavez and at the north end. Um, so altogether, this paints us a picture of where we see congestion in San Francisco and what solutions we're trying to focus on. Uh, I apologize that this slide is super data heavy here, um, but we also collected a number of volume and occupancy data points to help us understand how any carpool or HOV facility might work. Um, so let me highlight a few key takeaways here rather than having to dive into each numbers here. Um, so basically what we see overall is that an HOV definition of two or more persons per vehicle, uh, which would also include cleaner vehicles, motorcycles, buses, van pools, would result in about 20 to 30 percent of all the vehicles qualifying to use any managed lane, uh, HOV managed lane on this facility. Um, this would not fill up a HOV lane if it were to implement uh, on opening day. Um, the definition of three or more persons is even fewer, about 5 to 7%. These occupancy percentages, the 20 to 30 and 5 to 10, are comparable to most of the other freeways in the Bay Area. Um, so uh, scenarios that involve converting an existing lane would squeeze about 60 to 80% of the traffic into 66% of the capacity um, because that HOV lane would not be full. So that's one of the reasons why this study is interested in pursuing a lane that is more actively managed than just HOV2 or HOV3 occupancy to make sure that the lane is well used. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, we think that a managed lane in San Francisco has some preliminary feasibility um, and the ability to deliver real benefits not just to carpool and transit users, but to all freeway travelers. Uh, I should note that our partners in the South, San Mateo, have identified this concept as a feasible alternative themselves on US 101 and are currently beginning an environmental study to explore managed lanes south of the San Francisco International Airport. Of course, we understand that travelers do not necessarily respect county lines or project boundaries as part of their journeys, so we've begun discussions with San Mateo and Caltrans to explore options to create a seamless experience for travelers across the entire corridor. I'd also like to note here that Samtrans, the transit operator in San Mateo County, uh, is also kicking off a express bus study that's looking at ways to leverage any potential managed lanes or reliability on the freeways to create an um, express bus network that stretches all the way from San Jose to San Francisco. 
So the uh, FCMS team is currently in the process of developing and fleshing out specifically what a set of managed lands alternatives <laughs> might look like in San Francisco. Um, and the objectives and limitations that you see on the screen here come directly from the FCMS goals applied specifically to a managed land alternative. That is, we want to make sure that managed land users, including transit, have the ability to bypass congestion and have more reliable travel times. Uh, we want to leverage existing right-of-way. We don't think there's any need to expand the freeways within San Francisco and make that connection to any additional uh, facility in San Mateo County. Uh, we expect to present uh, the more fleshed-out version of these alternatives and their analysis during the January board cycle. Um, finally, uh, the community involvement in this is key. So the SFCTA is going to conduct some direct outreach with neighborhood groups and residents of neighbors along the freeway corridors. Um, and it, some broad-based outreach is anticipated in January along with that presentation of the analysis and needs. Um, there's also an understanding, again, that freeways serve regional travel, so we'll need to make sure that we capture not just um, the neighborhoods immediately adjacent to the freeways, but people that are using the freeways throughout the city and the region. Um, the next technical step, again, is that analysis of managed land alternatives and then um, coordination with Caltrans in terms of moving this into the next step of their project development. Uh, this is a very high-level schedule that we've proposed here that's quite aggressive, actually, that shows a implementation schedule um, for either a managed lane or other freeway uh, management alternative by the end of calendar year 2021. Um, so we hope that the projects that come out of FCMS will provide a real benefit to travelers in the near term, while other larger projects like DTX continue development and construction. So I'd like to thank Liz and uh, Art for coming as well today, and thank you, Commissioners. Happy to take questions. Thank you very much for your presentation. Commissioner Avalos. Thank you for the presentations, and I am supportive of uh, having lane management on HOV management on our freeways in San Francisco. I also think that, that it's important to proceed with caution and a great deal of community output. There's a whole part of San Francisco that uh, actually uses our freeways on a daily basis. Um, they drive. I'm, I'm one of them. I don't, not every day. Um, but I choose when I do drive to City Hall to take the freeway. I could take San Jose or I could take Guerrero, but I know that I'm just going to be contributing to traffic over there. Um, and so that's how I choose to drive. Uh, and a lot of people make that choice. And if you live in the southern part of San Francisco, uh, you know, that's kind of your option. But if you live in the northern part of San Francisco, Supervisor Pascal, I don't think he takes uh, uh, the freeway to work, do you? Only go to your house. Only, only when he comes to my house, which <laughs> has been a long time, actually. Uh, and we got to change that, maybe. Uh, and uh, Supervisor Farrell as well. Um, and so I, I think it's important to know that there are real neighborhood differences in terms of how we do our outreach, how we explain this. Um, there are also impacts that are going to happen on our other neighborhoods, and there needs to be a great deal of political hand-holding uh, with, you know, these, these populations, and I happen to be one of them. Um, and, but I also know that we have to manage congestion. That's what our whole role of this agency is, is to do that. Um, so I just want to make sure that that's, you know, a real key part, that you in your work in terms of uh, development and studying how to do this is that there are to take into consideration the real differences that uh, neighborhoods have around the city in terms of their transportation needs and find some way to uh, address that. It's going to be a huge political question, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm not going to be around to help with that. 
Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for your comments. <laughs> all right. Well, um, all right. Any other questions or comments, colleagues? Okay, seeing none, thank you very much for your presentation. We'll look forward to your follow-up on this in the future. Um, all right, uh, any public comment on item eight? Okay, seeing none, public comment is closed. And again, that was an information item, so let's go back now to item four real quick. Um, do we have someone from Public Works here? Douglas Ullman? Thank you. So I don't know if you caught the questions that we had asked, or should we repeat a couple of them? Um, I'm Douglas Ullman public from Works. Public Works. All right, so for the questions? worker fall protection um, project, I think some of our questions were around the cost. Um, I know that this is taking place at about seven facilities. Um, I think Commissioner Peskin had a question about whether this was a mandate that came down from OSHA to say that we needed to do this work. I mean, we care very much about worker safety, but we wanted to see if that was a mandate that came down from the state. Right, um, OSHA fines have been levied in the past. Um, and the, the facilities aren't currently OSHA compliant. So if we, should we not do the fall protection work, uh, we would not be allowed to work on top of the, um, the trolleys and um, LRV vehicles. What about the so, cable cars? Uh, cable cars also. Um, there is one um, portable platform being purchased for the cable car facility, so it is, uh, a separate procurement, um, but they, that's the least cost, um, easiest solution in this case to, to allow them to work on the cable car, uh, the tops of the cable cars safely. Uh, my other question was also about the fact that uh, through one of our most recent um, transportation bond measures, we're supposed to be renovating or building new uh, mini repair facilities, and so, how does that factor into all of the, the 14 million that we're going to be spending on these fall protection systems? Um, the two do not overlap. Um, the facilities that we're dealing with here are not part of the Prop A um, allocation. They're not, none of the Prop A money is, is going to these facilities, um, which I could, I could list them, Potrero, Presidio, Cameron Beach, Green, Light Rail. Muni Metro East, which is the original Muni Metro built about 10 years ago. Um, I understand there is a an ex track expansion project going on. Um, I don't know the status for Prop A, but this is a, it, within the original building, and it's a very small part of the program. I understand that was one of the questions. There is um, a current um, safety platform, and there's a small, about an 8 to 10-inch gap um, between the train and the platform, and we're extending the current platform to cover that gap so no one can fall um, in between. Commissioner Preston, does that answer your question about Muni Metro East? Yeah, from I, earlier? Well, I, the rails, what about the handrails? Why weren't those there? I think Muni Metro East was 2008, if my recollection serves, so that's eight years. Did we fail to put in the handrails then, or it's a new? Um... No, there are, there is a fall protection system at Muni Metro East on the platform that we're, we're working on. Um, it has guardrails and sort of a drawbridge so that you can open a gate and walk onto the train. And then there is a side-mounted, um, uh, what we call a, sort of like the zip line, the, the protection vest attached to a cable and a fall arrest system. Um, the, the concern is there is a small gap um, that the workers have raised issues about uh, that 
uh, tools, equipment, possibly personnel could slip into that, and it does exceed um, the guidelines, the safety guidelines. So we're, we're just closing that gap. Um, it is a small part of the budget. And then the other issue was just the uh, project management percentage seemed high to everybody. Project management or construction? Construction management. The construction management portion. I think it was um, two million. Yeah. Almost. As a percentage of the overall, um, because this is at seven, seven separate locations, and there is a, a high degree of coordination with the facility to keep it operating during the work. Um, for example, at Petrero, we're only allowed to um, to mobilize, and we have to demobilize every night so that, so that the um, the trolleys can be parked in the facility. There just is no other parking spots, um, so that's that's part of part of the construction management cost. It um, we feel it is within uh, an accept, acceptable range. All right. So well, thank a, you for that. Uh, any other questions then or comments? Okay. Well, thank you for uh, coming and answering our questions on behalf of SFMTA. Okay, so at this time, um, we'll go to public comment for item four. Any members of the public who wish to speak, please come on up. Seeing none, public comment is closed. All right, colleagues, and can we get a motion on item four? What is your motion? <laughs> okay, a motion to approve by Commissioner Alvarez. We'll second by Commissioner Bree. Thank you, and we'll do a roll call vote, please. All right, on item four, Commissioner Alvarez. Aye. Alvarez, aye. Commissioner Breed. Aye. Breed, aye. Commissioner Farrell. Aye. Farrell, aye. Commissioner Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Commissioner Tang. Aye. Tang, aye. Item is approved. All right. Thank you very much. Item nine. Item nine, introduction of new items. All right. Seeing none, any members of the public who wish to comment on item nine? Okay. Seeing none, public comment is closed. Item 10. Item 10, general public comment. Yes. Andrew Yip, Chinatown Missionary Officer. Social problems arise from worldly disorder and uncontrolled danger are caused by human character of individualism with corrupted personality departing from good virtues leading on to human downfall, or which we cannot easily manage with legislative policies, executive control, and legal system. We must apply our true mercy, true love, holiness, virtues, and upright principles to enlighten people for common recovery of origin of wisdom. So even in time and place of worldly security, we must not abandon holiness and forgetting of two principles. We must construct our society with holiness and virtues. We must prevent the destructive force to wound our society. We have to reason well to know of only holiness and virtues are the major elements of true success in actualization of heavenly destiny. We have to advance good people with great virtues and establish the holiness in this world society. With good spirit, everything would come to a good success. With corruption, corruption of spirit, everything would lead to despair. We must create a bride for the new century of good hope. We must spread the words of true holy principle. We must set all people free from being enslaved onto worldly contamination. We must turn all worldly danger back to securities. Of holy wisdom, of compassion, mercy, and love, of having destiny, 
God bless the whole mission. Thank you. Thank you very much. Any other members of the public who wish to speak? Seeing none, public comment is closed. All right, item 11. All right, item 11, adjournment. Thank you. This meeting is adjourned.